This is the Sci DevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. First up today, we hear about a promising new vaccine to treat dengue fever. It's a nasty virus that lives in mosquitoes and is spreading beyond the tropics. Then we take a look at the new internet learning platforms connecting students from different countries. Finally, we hear about a special reforestation project in Costa Rica and the growing movement to integrate conservation priorities with local development. Coming up right after this. Welcome to the SciDevNet podcast, where we travel the globe to connect science and development through news, views and analysis. Our goal is to raise awareness of the issues to help reduce poverty and improve sustainable development. And we normally kick off our podcast with a big hello from me, Chris Kreese, and with a big hello from Rosina Mbewe. But the lovely Rosina is away for the summer in Zambia. Hi, Rosina. Stepping in is the delightful Lou Del Bello. I am looking forward to chatting about this new dengue fever vaccine. So, Chris, can you tell us a bit more about the disease? Sure. Dengue fever is a life-threatening virus carried by mosquitoes in more than 100 countries around the world, and it's still spreading. Each year, 100 million people catch dengue, according to estimates by the World Health Organization. To put that big number into perspective, that would be about the equivalent of the entire population of Mexico contracting dengue every year. The disease puts tremendous pressure on the health systems of developing countries and the World Health Organization aims to reduce dengue mortality by 50% by the year 2020. Right now there's no specific treatment or cure for the disease but European company Sanofi Pasteur have been trying to develop a dengue vaccine over the last 20 years. And they have some exciting news to report in this podcast. Yes, a clinical trial of the new vaccine is showing great promise for reducing cases of dengue in Asia. Here to tell us more is Dr. Nicholas Jackson, Head of Research and Development at Sanofi Pasteur. So we've just reported our phase three results. So this is the world's first phase three trial. Uh, for a dengue vaccine. This is the first of two studies. And what we've shown in over 10,000 volunteers in Asia is a reduction in dengue disease by 56%. And this is a major public health milestone given it's the first trial. The other thing that we've reported is safety data, good profile consistent with previous trials. And the other thing that actually surprised us is the incidence of dengue. In our trial every year, we saw one out of 20 children succumbing to the disease, which I think speaks to the magnitude of the infection. So can we just put that in context? How many people are affected every year by dengue? And why hasn't there been a vaccine, a workable vaccine in the past? Yes, it's a great question, putting it in perspective. Um, the disease exposes two and a half billion people at risk every year. And that risk is every single day. This mosquito that carries the disease will bite you right the way through the day. From, from the morning through till dusk. And there are 100 million infections because of that exposure to risk. Uh, the disease causes acute febrile illness. Um, there, from that would be two million severe infections 
and that results in 500,000 hospitalizations a year. And if you've ever seen an epidemic of dengue in a country, the wards are literally overflowing. People can be lying in the corridors. It's extremely difficult for the healthcare system to manage it. To your second question about uh, why it's been so difficult, well, there are four targets, because there are four serotypes of dengue. So you have to have a tetravalent vaccine, so you have to deal with all four strains. And dengue is a difficult disease, and the biology is unpredictable, and the epidemiology is unpredictable. So it's been a tough target uh, for not only Sanofi Pasteur, but investigators and other companies around the world. Uh, will there ever be a moment when it is eradicated? The WHO has set some pretty ambitious targets for 2020. They want to see the reduction of mortality by 50% and morbidity by 20%. We believe that a vaccine is a key step to reduce the disease. As we've seen with other vaccines, the eradication of disease can often be dependent on the, the ability to prevent it through vaccination. Um, vector control is also an important part of dealing with dengue and those programs remain uh, essential in some regions. So you're part of an R&D division of a business. Why is it in a business's interest to develop a vaccine for possibly some of the poorest people in the world? Because our mission is a public health one through, through prophylaxis. That 56% that we've reported, again, to put it into context, when you've got no treatment, no prevention, a major unmet medical need, our driver has been public health. And as I emphasized in the, con in, in the Congress, this is not typical of a normal vaccine development where the vaccine goes from the north to the south. So Nofi Pasteur recognized that this disease burden is so substantial we wanted to make sure the vaccine could be available for those that need it, which is why this vaccine is going directly to the countries that require it. Um, this is a major milestone. What happens next as far as your company is concerned? Sure. Well, our analyses are ongoing uh, for the current study that we reported because we only have the top line results. We also have the second study in South America, uh, 20,000 uh, subjects, a very important second study. When those results are available, we'll obviously do the appropriate analysis, we'll present the results accordingly when they're available, and those will be important prerequisites for licensure. We will then obviously speak to the authorities and uh, pursue a path to make sure this vaccine gets to those, hunt those endemic countries. Do you ever, as a scientist, as a research person, find it frustrating that the process is so slow? Ten years is a long time for vaccines and life is short, but um, the reason why it's slow is because we have to step through every single process. There is a lot of compliance and a lot of regulation. Um, and we have to do things carefully because we're dealing, of course, with, uh, with uh, children, adolescents and adults. Um, so we try and channel that frustration into making the right decisions at the right point in development, which is why the result that we've announced is so exciting to spend so many years and to have a result where we've met the primary endpoint in our trial is, is, is great news for the field and for the dengue community. As changes come about with climate modification, could that disease move from tropical regions to, well, what about London? Well, London may be a little bit way off given the temperature because the vector enjoys a certain amount of humidity and a certain temperature. But now in Florida, there are endemic, indigenous, excuse me, indigenous cases of dengue, now in Texas. We see in the uh, Caribbean islands uh, dengue. Uh, there have been local cases even in France. Um, so dengue is still on the march, and it's because of the urbanization. 
this vector enjoys living in your house. It will stay in your house and it will bite you in your house. So as urbanization increases, dengue is adapting because of the vector. That was Dr. Nicholas Jackson speaking with Claire Kemp at the 15 May Drug Discovery and Development Conference in London, hosted by the International Society for Neglected Tropical Diseases. Thanks, Lou. So, I don't know what you thought, but to me, a couple points really jumped out. One was that global warming is expanding the range size of mosquitoes carrying dengue, mm. so the number of people at risk of getting infected is growing. A second point was just that more people are clustering together in large cities, and so there's a greater risk of contracting dengue because mosquitoes seek out these hot spots where the population is dense. And that's, of course, because mosquitoes can't fly very far and cities make for pretty easy meals. Uh, well, that reaffirms the need to get a vaccine sorted as soon as possible, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Because it's going to be hard to stop warming temperatures and urbanization, of course. Indeed. So shall we say a few words too, maybe about the phases of the mm -hmm. clinical trials and what they mean? Sure. So phase one was giving the vaccine to a small number of healthy adults to check that the vaccine is well tolerated and without any serious side effects. Then they moved into phase two, which involved a larger group, about 200 people, to see whether the vaccine actually worked to prevent dengue infection. Yes, and it was promising enough to move to the phase three clinical trial, the world's first for dengue fever. This study took place over the last three years in five Asian countries, where the disease burden is really high. 10,000 children participated to test the vaccine's effectiveness and safety. And the results look pretty good so far. Yeah, Nicholas said a little more than half of the children vaccinated were able to avoid dengue infection. So I would say the immunity is far from perfect, but some protection is better than none. And this vaccine could go a long way toward reducing mortality. The study will continue to monitor the vaccinated population to see what happens over the long term. But meanwhile, there's a second big clinical trial starting in Latin America, including 20,000 volunteers from another five countries. If this dengue vaccine does move to market, I'll be especially keen to see how Sanofi Pasteur promotes equitable access, because nearly a third of the world's population currently has poor access to essential medicines. I see the development of new vaccines by pharmaceutical companies as both an opportunity to reduce the global disease burden and to support development of emerging health systems. Up next, Liu tells us about new e-learning platforms connecting students from developed and developing countries. Chatting, working and exchanging information online are part of our everyday lives. We can be in touch with friends as well as colleagues, and we can also use the internet to learn. The so-called e-learning is common in rich countries, with dedicated platforms that allow us to study almost anything from maths to baking. But in developing countries, where electrification and the internet connectivity have so far been very poor, e-learning is beginning as better ICT infrastructure is introduced. And it's revealing not only a tool for development, but also for dialogue between the North and the Global South. Last month, I attended the International Journalism Festival in Perugia, Italy. There, 
I met journalist Donata Columbro, who works to promote e-learning and multimedia journalism as a way to educate the future citizens of the world. I work for an NGO which is called the CISB, based in Turin, north of Italy. Um, with this NGO, I've been traveling to Africa to run uh, training courses for students in high schools um, to teach them how to write a multimedia blog post on different topics. And the aim, the purpose of this kind of job is to um, create an exchange between cultures. So, for instance, we take um, topics as uh, food sovereignty or migration. And we want kids to discover what the other culture is thinking about those topics. So the point would be to use new media to improve mutual understanding between different nations and different cultures. And uh, how do you do this in practice? Uh, students have to contact their, um, uh, their close friends, their families, and to investigate uh, a topic. Then they have to collect the material and create um, a multimedia post on a blog. Um, this uh, blog post is going to be read by their fellows in Italy, in France, and in, in the countries where the project is running. Uh, do you find there are problems in terms of uh, facilities, in terms of infrastructure in poorer countries? So do students have um, access to a computer, to internet? Yes, of course, there are uh, a lot of problems. And the typical scene that we have while we are doing those kind of workshops is that uh, there are uh, 15 students in front of computers watching a video uploading on YouTube for half an hour. And we are all standing there. And uh, sometimes it even happens that uh, electricity can go down and all the time you spend trying to upload your video is gone and you have to uh, begin again. But... Um, I, I have seen, I've experienced a lot of changes in better connectivity. So even in rural areas, uh, you can find uh, some spots, some cyber cafes where students can meet uh, and uh, use technology uh, to not only to read content, but to produce content, which is uh, one of the main goals of the project. Despite some technical problems that still persist in the developing world, e-learning is gaining momentum and it's been embraced by African universities to broaden the academic perspective of researchers and build bridges with countries willing to share their resources. Claire Kemp spoke to Moses Mulimira, who is in charge of a new learning partnership between Makerere University of Kampala in Uganda and King's College in London in the UK. The project aims to create an online sharing platform for health students and practitioners, as well as lessons being broadcast live and students being able to ask lecturers questions. They also have access to research materials made available online. E-learning means a lot of different things. What is new about the work that you're doing? Um, what's new is the idea that students, um, healthcare students, can come together with healthcare students in the UK and share without being there. It's much easier sort of to interact. A new technological system has been built in Uganda. So we're taking, we're taking use of this and sort of um, improve students' healthcare skills. Can you describe the people sitting in the conference rooms on both sides? Are they students? Are they nurses? Are they doctors? 
um, we, we're having a mixture. At the moment, um, the last pilot we did, we had uh, around 50 students. A third of them were medical students and sort of the other side was um, both nursing and sort of social workers. The idea is sort of to bring individuals involved in, social, in sort of healthcare, the whole system to be involved in this. In the UK, we had it's a student partnership, so we had mostly nursing and medical students who came together and also some of the lecturers um, who attended. Would this be a system that will allow students to find new partners for research in the future as well? Yes, that's that's the idea here. That we, if if um we feel that um, there's a project in King's College which a student can do in Uganda, we can actually share that. Someone in Uganda will do that, and we can actually bring it up with the Royal Society of Medicine, who who can actually they're keen to use their platform as well. Also, it's technologies. Everyone is it's available now. You know, it sounds interesting that a mobile phone. If this video link can be sort of can be can be uploaded on a mobile someone can have it so information will be shared whenever they are in the community they can have this in the uk as well it's it's a way of empowering students to sort of think globally the world is becoming more global and close to each other so it's a way forward if the pilot project works it'll save money needed to train health practitioners in kampala as well as improving the scope of research both in uganda and the uk Yes, yesterday I met the president of Uganda here in the UK and was keen to promote um, information technology. So I can see this sort of um, the idea moving further across Africa, across developing countries and also across the globally. So why not? Why not indeed? That was Moses Mulimira chatting to Claire Kemp about a new e-learning pilot project connecting healthcare students in Uganda and the United Kingdom. And before that, I was chatting with Donata Columbro about the new Eat and Think blog run by students and teachers from Italy, Uganda and Senegal. Lou, you mentioned ICT, information and communication systems. And of course, access to these is still a challenge in rural areas without electricity. But Moses pointed out that a lot of these e-materials can be accessed by mobile phones too, which are easier to get than computers. Right. It's worth noting, too, that this Eat and Think blog is available in three languages, English, French and Italian, which is helping the students cross the language barrier and exchange ideas. So I wanted to know, Lou, do you happen to have a favorite post? <laughs> well, I was, I was pretty excited about the post on how to set up and run a school garden. Oh, I like that one, too. You know what else I liked? The, uh, the post describing how beer is made in Acholi land. Oh, yeah. I could go for some maize beer right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> me too. Actually, that's one drawback of e-learning, isn't it? You can't really go out with your mates for a beer after class. But in all seriousness, there are many benefits. Telecommuting reduces transportation emissions and the burden of travel for students in remote locations. The e-learning movement is also providing new educational tools and materials for students in developing countries. But the digital landscape is also a way of putting in touch the rich and the poor, encouraging communication between people living in very different worlds. As Moses pointed out, e-learning is empowering all students to think globally. Up next, we hear about biocultural hope and a reforestation project in Costa Rica. <laughs> Development of local economies and environmental protection can be seen as antagonistic processes. But in the highlands of Costa Rica, a special reforestation project at the Monteverde Cloud Forest School is finding the delicate balance between promoting tourism and biodiversity. Dr. Ebin Kirksey is a lecturer at University of New South Wales in Australia. He's a social cultural anthropologist 
who trekked around Costa Rica after finishing his PhD. Evan was invited to talk about biocultural hope, reforestation in Costa Rica's highlands at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia at the end of March. He's interested in emergent ecologies and interactions of multiple species in environments that are recovering from disaster. We'll hear a short clip from Eben's talk and then he answers Chris's questions. Milton Brennis is the coordinator of the reforestation program at the Monteverde Cloud Forest School. He's a, a short mustached man with a seemingly endless reserve of energy. He's a farmer. On 11 hectares of derelict pasture, he's recreating a forest in collaboration with a multitude of plants. In parallel, uh, the Cloud Forest School, which owns the property, which is a private K-11 institution, is trying to create a community of English-speaking children and uh, young adults who are going to help care for this rejuvenating landscape. He's basically guiding this labor force of children and volunteers like myself, uh, carefully attending to our interests. So hope for the future, Milton told me in Spanish, lies in the conservation of diversity. At first blush, this soundbite might sound like a simple repetition of environmental platitudes, but paying careful attention to Milton's rhetoric and practice reveals instead a clever way of speaking in terms a transnational audience can hear. Diversity here is a project of cultural hybridity, mestizaje, where a diversity of uses and indigenous traditions, a diversity of articulations with market economies, and a diversity of taxonomic forms all matter. Using the language of hope and diversity helps Milton direct the impulses of short-term volunteers and uh, foreign staff like myself, drawing us into a living architecture of regenerating forest trees. An ecosystem is emerging, a riotous collection of strangers, which has begun to exceed Milton's own vision. Entrepreneurial plants, worms, and other animals are generating their own multi-species communities. What sort of novel ecological assemblages might we build together? Can we construct new ecosystems while embracing social justice concerns, while grappling with the subjective experience of other organisms, and upholding conservation values? Can we do this all at the same time? Thank you. So, Evan, you spent some time in Costa Rica. Perhaps you could describe the area you were in a bit for us. Yeah, so, so Monteverde in, in Spanish means green mountain. Um, so th this, this habitat is, is very high elevation. Um, it gets a lot of mist from clouds. And it became, in, in the 80s, the, the site in, in the international uh, Save the Rainforest campaign. So uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars were raised to buy up land. Um, some of these conservation projects had problems, though. And uh, a lot of them were focused on species that people from abroad, from North America, cared a lot about, like the Quetzal, a, a very uh, colorful bird. And what distinguishes Milton's project from what came before them is a, a real attention to not only international conservation concerns, uh, growing a very diverse community, but a real attention to what diversity means to this local community of farmers and, and, and people with very deep roots in, in the region. So Milton's vision of the future involves not only thinking about taxonomic diversity, how many different kinds of tree species do we have, but, but thinking about creative ways of interesting people in this place, keeping them interested in uh, having this forest stand. So what Milton's doing is, is really cultivating 
a diverse community that interfaces with people. So that provides people with uh, different sorts of fruits as snacks. The, the children who go to school there uh, eat all sorts of things. Um, one of their favorite fruits is a, a relatively unknown and rare tree that the kids call monkey boogers. It's this uh, uh, <laughs> sort of slimy fruit you open up and crunch. Uh, one, one young boy warned me uh, not to eat too much because if you eat too many monkey boogers, your tongue goes numb. So, so there's all sorts of interesting, tasty plants that uh, he's cultivating, but he's not just thinking about human interests. Uh, the, this project is using all sorts of trees that attract a diversity of insect pollinators, that attract a diversity of bats and birds, that uh, bring with them new seeds. So, so the idea isn't to create this homogenous plantation, this, this thing that will stay the same over time, um, but he's imagining something that will exceed his vision. So, so for Milton, hope is something that contains an opening to the future, and that future is, is full of all sorts of exciting surprises. How would you describe Milton's approach? Tourism is an important draw, so it sounds like there would be selection of some species that would support the charismatic megafauna. How does he balance that against the biologist's preference for planting out diverse local species, uh, perhaps those that are on the IUCN red list of endangered species? Yeah, Mil Milton is, is working at the intersection of all these really diverse interests. So at, at the same time, he does hope to keep bringing the tourists back, um, he, you know, recognizing that the economy these days has come to depend on these flighty visitors from abroad. He's, he's also listening to people who've done very careful studies about the distribution of certain sorts of trees. One of the uh, most important plants for some of the charismatic fauna um, that are both of interest to the bird to the uh, birders who come from abroad, people who like bird watching, and and also um, some influential members of the conservation community uh, are are wild avocados. So so wild avocados are important food for the quetzal. They're important foods for toucans, and Milton plants these with the idea that they will bring those those animals so that people can have encounters. He he wants his students to learn about them in part so that they can have uh, meaningful roles in, in the local economy and community of conservation. But he also plants them with, with the interests of, of those particular species in mind. Milton is also very careful to leave certain areas to just uh, emerge on, on their own accord. Um, he's, he's got certain parts of, of the school grounds well, that are almost like an arboretum where you have labels for trees, uh, very manicured like a park uh, with benches. And then he's got other areas where he's just letting wild things flourish. So it's, it's between these two spaces that you're getting this explosion of diversity. So beyond the space where Milton is actively caring for these plants, I found dozens of species that were emerging of their own accord. So in addition to the 12 odd species that Milton is actually planting with the children, all these things are, are being brought in by other species. So I, I think it's sort of this interplay between active care and cultivation of certain kinds of trees that are both good for some animals, good for tourism, um, but then also that, that sort of benign neglect that allows wild things to flourish. I, I think that's what makes this a really interesting project. And could you tell us a little bit more about how it's impacting the local people? Um, th there's, there's social inequality that marks 
Monteverde. There's there's a lot of tourists who visit who have a lot of money. People come there to do zipline tours. They come there, you know, to enjoy nature. Um, so so there's an undercurrent of political inequity at this place. When when you're at school there, you can hear these rich people zooming through the trees on zip lines. Uh, the Tarzan swing is is a big attraction next door at this uh, canopy tour place. But but the the children are are taught um, all sorts of skills. Many of them go on to to future study, but a lot also take up uh, residence in in the local economy of tourism. So um, they become guides, they become receptionists, they become taxi drivers. There's been a lot of economic opportunities in this this zone. Um, you know, one of the premier destinations for ecotourism. Basically, the the coming of of ecotourism and the coming of conservation has both produced opportunities for folks in Monteverde, but it's also sort of exacerbated the inequities. So uh, you you have uh, these encounters between rich folks on vacation and local folks who who are struggling to survive. And and, and I I really think um, the approach that Milton has taken to conservation is, you know, trying to attend to the needs of communities that have been there a long time, in addition to people who want to enjoy a vacation in the tropics and and see fun, charismatic animals like monkeys. So this sounds like a very interesting example of an educational program aimed at refurbishing ecosystems in a way that can benefit local people, create more sustainable development, especially through preservation of wild spaces in tandem with the tourism industry. And it will lead to any number of possible ecological futures. I guess scientists will be scrambling to see how these human rebuilt ecosystems will develop given these sort of idiosyncratic collections of multiple species. Well, I think if, if you look at forests of Central America and you look closely at them, what, what you see is not a virgin wilderness, but you see a long history of human interactions with, with the landscape. And, and I think the conservation movement might uh, take note of that and, and also look to a future not where we can erase the past, where we can try to imagine a future forest that is outside of human influence, but to, to think carefully and critically about what beings we want to be in this world with us, and not just try to replicate the past, but open the future to possibilities. Thanks very much, Evan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks to Dr. Eben Kirksey. And Chris, doesn't it sound great, the idea to go to Costa Rica and work for reforestation, planting trees? Mm. I wonder if we should plan a little side-of-net trip to Costa Rica as well. Ooh, a field trip, yes, please. And actually, Chris, uh, you worked in Costa Rica for your PhD, right? I did, in the tropical lowlands, Mm. and I saw a lot of deforestation to make room for agriculture. In fact, it's estimated that less than a quarter of Costa Rica's primary forest still stands. And primary... Oh, yes, that just means uh, the healthy, mature forests with big trees and lots of diversity. Oh, oh, right. And uh, um, I know there are payments for ecosystem services schemes to reward green land management in Costa Rica, but a big challenge is how to ensure these schemes are benefiting the poor, not just the rich landowners. And there's an article about this on SideFNet. If you search for eco-land management. Exactly. And this Cloud Forest School, I would say, is an example of an alternative approach that provides more direct local benefits because of the tourism draw, while at the same time reclaiming damaged landscapes to grow new forests. 
There was a recent study showed that ecotourism reduces poverty in surrounding areas. And it was in countries such as Costa Rica, Bolivia, and also Thailand. Yes, and you can find that article on SciDevNet2 by searching for Conservation Poverty Link. Uh, but let's go back to the interview for a moment. It sounds like there's a tension over who decides what species to plant out and which to remove from the ecosystem being rehabilitated. Yes, so there's the scientific perspective, Mm -hmm. and that prioritizes endangered species and the plants that support proper ecosystem function. But there's also local economic perspective prioritizing species that draw in the tourists. So, for example, trees attracting beautiful birds or monkeys. Yes, everyone loves monkeys. You do. (laughs) I do love the monkeys, even though they threw stuff at me when I was doing fieldwork. Still love the monkeys. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think although there is a tension there, what the Cloud Forest School shows us is that in addition to broader plans guiding restoration efforts at the national level, there's a lot of room for local people to carve out conservation projects in their own communities, integrating local students, foreign visitors, a tourism economy and reforestation can simultaneously promote local development and biodiversity. That sounds like the crux of biocultural hope. And to learn more about the Cloud Forest School in Monteverde, go to cloudforestschool.org. And that's our podcast. To comment on this show and other articles, go to our website at www.scidev.net. If you have a story to share, check out our Work With Us page. You can also visit the Donate to Us page if you'd like to contribute to SciDev support of journalists in developing countries. To listen to our podcast whenever you like, you can also find us on SoundCloud. Just search for SciDev. In the meantime, to stay connected, you can follow us on Twitter at SciDevNet and on Facebook. And if you have a question, idea to share, or just want to get involved, you can email us info at SciDev.net. That leaves us to say many thanks to Dr. Nicholas Jackson, Donata Columbro, Moses Mulimira, Dr. Evan Kirksey, and Claire Kemp. And thanks to you, our listeners, for helping us put science at the heart of global development. Until next time, I say bye-bye from me, Lou Del Bello. And bye from me, Chris Kreese. This podcast is made possible thanks to support from Cambridge 105. Cambridge 105.